Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee, where we have conversations for transformation. Our mission is that we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. And I trust over the next few moments as I take you on a journey as we explore our idol factories, what is happening in our hearts, I trust that this will spur you on to many conversations that will lead to personal transformation, and then also for those within your sphere of care. And so I've titled this talk, Exploring the Idol Factory, How to Identify the Ruling Motives of the Heart. The big idea is that the process of change begins when you can determine the actual ruling motive of the heart, the genesis, the source of all of our words and all of our actions. You see, our hearts generate our problems, therefore identifying the war that is within all of us, it will bring us to the actual starting place in the discipleship change process. The key verse that I'm going to use for this talk is a passage of Scripture from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. Jesus speaks in a redundant fashion here because he wants us to get the point. The point is, is that there is no discontinuity between the words that we use and our hearts. You can draw a straight line from our words to our hearts because our words are generated in our hearts. This is how he said it in Luke 6. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. And here is his summary statement as he wraps up this short paragraph. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Perhaps you can say it this way, that all of our sin patterns are rooted in our functional theology at the level of our hearts rather than in the behavioral patterns of our perceived problems. Now, functional theology is our boots-on-the-ground theology. It is what we actually believe. What we believe comes out in our words, and it comes out in our deeds. We can have an intellectual theology and a a theology— that we have learned in the academy, that we have learned in Sunday school, that we have learned through many sermons that we have listened to. But you will know the discontinuity, if there is one, between our academy, between our intellectual theology and our functional theology. But when you are trying to help someone change, It is better to see how their theology is acted out on the ground than hearing them share with you what they know about the Bible. And so our functional theology is the closest representation of what we truly, truly believe. Therefore, examining our functional theology, it will reveal what is going on in our hearts rather than the behavioral patterns of our perceived problems. A short way of saying what Jesus was saying in Luke chapter 6 is, problem fruit, corrupted root. Now, it wasn't a one-off in Luke 6 when Jesus said that, because you can go to Matthew 7, verses 17 and 18, and he says it this way, So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You see the discontinuity. There cannot be discontinuity. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Therefore, what we need to do as we examine ourselves and as we serve others within our discipleship constructs is we want to do root inspection. We do not do this in an uncharitable way, a a condemning way or a self-righteous way, but because we love God and love others, because we count others more significant than ourselves, we want to have the courage and the grace and the compassion to 
to examine the source of all of our words and actions. Therefore, one of the most important questions that you will ever ask anyone that you're discipling is, why do we do what we do? And so as you examine your life, you want to ask that question. You want to dig into the idol factory with all compassion, all courage, all competence, because we need to examine the ruling motives of our heart so that we can experience true sustainable transformation. Therefore, in this talk, I want to break it up into three parts. Let me show you my outline. In part number one, I want to talk about unbiblical reasons for our actions. Now, these reasons will not fly. These reasons will not stand. We cannot justify or rationalize any of these reasons that I will lay out for you in this part. And so we want to be very clear uh, on unbiblical reasons so that we can move toward biblical reasons for, for our change and for the lives that we live. And then in part two, I want to talk about true or false reasons for our actions. Granted that sometimes there is ambiguity. It's not clearly unbiblical as we look at our motivations, but it might not be biblical as well. And so without judgment, but exercising much discernment, we want to have conversations for transformation that allow us to discern what is true and what is false about the reasons or the motivations for the things that we do. And so this second part gets into that 18% gray area of our lives where it might be a good motive or it might not be. We need to discern that. And then in part number three, I want to talk about clearly these are biblical reasons for our actions. It is antithetical to part number one. So you see the progression. It is unbiblical. Then there is ambiguity. And then it is clearly biblical for what we do. So let's start with point number one, unbiblical reasons for our actions. Now, the way that I want to walk through this is I want to use euphemisms. Euphemisms are a common way that some of us can, can fall prone to uh, by using euphemistic language in order to explain what we do. I want to give you several euphemisms that may be familiar with you as I work through this part number one. But just in case you're unfamiliar with what a euphemism is, a euphemism is a mild or possibly indirect word or maybe an indirect expression that we substitute for a word or expression that seems too harsh or too blunt when referring to something that is unpleasant or embarrassing. We are very loyal to ourselves, and there can be a temptation to cut corners or to circumvent or to round the edges off why we do what we do. Uh, we don't want to say it as clearly as it needs to be stated, and so the temptation is, is to water down our actions or our words. We can rationalize. We can justify our actions. We can even blame them on other people, but because of our Adamic tendencies, to hide behind fig leaves, we can learn euphemistic language as a way of drifting from God's Word while tacitly acknowledging that what we did is wrong, but we say it in such a way that it loses its force, it loses its edge, and euphemistic language will do that. As you read the Gospels, you know that Jesus was not like this at all. Some would say that he was, he was really blunt. He was not unkind. I would say that he was really clear. But unfortunately, at this juncture in our human history, we have many have drifted so far from the directness and the clarity of God's word that euphemistic language actually is more palatable than the clear teaching of God's word. So let me explain what I mean as we look in part number one, unbiblical reasons for our actions using euphemistic language. And so in this graph, what you see are four columns. In column number one, I'm going to give you a list of euphemisms, many of them you will be familiar with. In columns two, three, and four, we have a biblical category, a possible heart motivation, and this is what we're doing, examining the, examining the ruling motives of our heart. And then you see a biblical response. And so in these three columns, two, three, and four, 
is a template for what you see in Ephesians 4, 22, 23, and 24, where Paul said, put off, renew our minds, renew our hearts, and then put on a biblical response. And so that's what these three columns represent. Let me explain as we work through some euphemisms. I do things my way. I do things my way is, well, it's a biblical category. Possibly it could be of self-sufficiency, a self-sufficient person. And, and what I want you to see, one of the things I want you to see here is that when you listen to people, you want to take their language and you want to pull it through a biblically hermeneutic filter, a, a Bible way of interpreting what they are saying. We don't do this in a mean-spirited way. We don't do this as as word police or where we have a mallet that we're just pounding them on top of the head because they did not use the right language. It's not about using the right language, but it's about understanding why we do what we do. And, of course, the more that you move our language through this hermeneutical filter into a Bible category, the more clearly you will be able to see what's going on. And so without being uncomfortable, or uncharitable, we always want to retranslate our language biblically. And once you do that, then that will put you on a more solid path, a clearer path to understand what's happening. So a person who, and they can say, I do things my way in an unwitting way. Uh, Maybe they're not even aware of what is going on. And so the the Bible category for that is self-sufficiency. And what you want to renew in the heart of a person like that is fear. And, of course, what you want to put on as you put on Christ, it would be God-dependence. Let me illustrate what self-reliance, or also called self-sufficiency, what that could look like. Perhaps you have an individual who just comes across as omnicompetent. They can just do all things. Well, first of all, we know that self-sufficiency is an illusion. Nobody is self-sufficient but God. In order to pull off any kind of semblance of, of self-reliance, you have to whittle your world down to that which you can manage. And so a person with a self reliant spirit attitude about them is a person that has shrunk in their world down to a bite-sized pieces, to a comfort zone, to a, a box or a parameter which they can work inside of. And as long as they are working inside their comfort zone, sure, they can accomplish all things. They can do all things through themselves who strengthens themselves. But that's the illusion of self-sufficiency. Now, if we're not careful, we can affirm this sinful behavior, not recognizing that this person is not dependent on God at all, but they're dependent on themselves. Now, one of the ways that you'll find out that a self-sufficient person is operating uh, in, a, in a self-reliant spirit is when God providentially pushes them outside of their comfort zone, and when they are pushed beyond their ability, when they are burdened beyond their strength to take care of things, you will see fear as one of the attitudes that will come out of their heart, and that's why fear is always connected to this self-sufficient spirit. They are not my type. That is another euphemism, the Bible Bible category. As you bring that through that hermeneutical filter is self-righteousness, and the possible heart condition is self-atonement. Now, the reason I say self-atonement is because of self-righteousness. In order to be self-righteous, you have to elevate yourself above others and look down on them to where you could say something euphemistically like they are not my type. Well, in order to elevate yourself above above anyone, then you have to work to do that. You have to make an atonement. Uh, You have to build yourself up, uh, whether it's through your uh, vocational choices, your intellect, the neighborhoods you live in, uh, the materialism that you have accumulated. But whatever it is, and it could be multiple things, that an individual will elevate themselves up a ladder, rungs on a ladder, righteously looking down on other people when we know from a Christian worldview that the ground is level around the cross. And as Paul said, what have you received that was not given to you? There is no place for self-righteousness within the heart of any person. But when we look down on another individual, whether it's somebody in our small group or somebody in our local church or maybe even someone in the culture, when we look down on them, we are self-righteous, not understanding the gospel that no one is righteous, no, not one. But this person has elevated themselves in their mind through self-atoning practices, however they have elevated themselves in the works that they have done to do that, which what you have is a possible heart of 
of self-atonement, and of course the response would be humility. By the way, if Christ were, let's say, in heaven before Philippians 2, uh, when he became man, and told his father that they are not my type, he would actually be right, because we are not his type. But that is the attitude that we want to take, uh, that the mind of Christ, as Paul was laying out in Philippians 2, where we count others more significant than ourselves. So again, there is no place for us to judge someone in our small group, local church, community, or cul-de-sac, uh, to where we are elevating ourselves Above them, we want to have the mind of Christ, which is humility. Another euphemism is ready, fire, aim. Now, that's possibly not something that you would say, uh, but it is the heart of an impatient person. As James would say, we would want to be quick to listen and slow to speak. The possible heart condition is laziness, or as you see on the screen here, slothfulness. The biblical response would be patience and love. Euphemistically, I have always been shy. Now, as you hear this, what I am not saying is that the response is to be a, is to be a talking head. No, there are some people who are just reserved, and that is who they are. However, shyness is not the proper way to describe that, because shyness begins to take on an attitude. It, it it begins to be sinful where we can hide behind this identity of shyness and never step into the fullness of what a gospelized man or woman could be. And so it doesn't mean that you will be a talking head and that you have to be the life of the party, but it doesn't mean that you will be shy either. And so what is possibly going on as far as a Bible category is concerned is a selfish person where they are withholding their words from another person. A part of leadership is actually communication. God leads us with his words. Now, you may be reserved, and that is fine, but shyness, well, there's no place for that within the Christian life. And so uh, the person who is reserved will speak when necessary, as often as need be. They will not withhold their words. They will not be selfish. And it could be that they're craving reputation as far as a possible heart condition because some people do not want to speak because they fear punitive action, judgment, mocking, criticism, and they want to be accepted and approved by other people. And they can hide behind a cloak of shyness, for example, using this euphemism. And what is really going on is that they want to be thought well of, and they have learned that if they communicate, there's a possibility that there may be some form of rejection or rebuttal in what they say, so they don't say anything. And of course, the biblical response would be servanthood. I get so worked up. This is a euphemistic uh, language uh, that people can use. I'm going to use the Bible category, uh, Bible category of complaining, a possible heart condition of hopelessness, and then a biblical response of thankfulness. Now, what I would like for you to see on this screen is that I don't want you to see this as, as being codified or a formula. I am just using words here, but I don't want you to think of this as being formulaic, uh, because you can substitute some of these uh, words here. Uh, the always been shy person where I have craving reputation, for example, well, obviously that could be fear. It could also be a slothfulness as well. I'm using different words in each column just to give you a word cloud that you can think of, but I'm not saying that this each line is uh, exactly how it always is with the person who uses this euphemistic language. And so you do want to be pneumatic as you walk in the Spirit and consider Bible categories, possible heart conditions, and biblical responses. I would not want you to screenshot this slide and somebody says, I do things my way, and you automatically run down this line of self-sufficiency, fear, and God dependence because that is how I am supposed to interpret that. So again, this is not a formula. Uh, this is just an exploration as we explore the idol factory. I'm giving you possibilities, but there's a lot of these words that you can shift around on this uh, slide, but I intentionally use different words every time because I want to expand the word cloud as much as possible so that we can think in a plenary way when a person is struggling with something. Then, of course, we would ask the Spirit of God to give us discernment to 
really nail it down for this unique person that we're talking to. All right, let's work through another one here, another slide. Euphemistically, it was only a little fib. As you know, that person is lying, and there's no question about it. No big lies or small lies. It's just lies. Now, I'm speaking more from a from an ontological level as far as what lies are. Uh, lies are equal. A little lie would put Christ on the cross as well as a big one. Now, consequentially, of course, lies can be different in size and consequence, but I'm not speaking to the consequences of it. I'm just talking about it is a sin, and we can't stand before the Lord and say, mine was a quarter of a lie and his was a three-quarters of a lie. Lying is sin no matter the size. Now, a possible heart condition is anxiety or fear. Uh, You might want to insert here as uh, the person was afraid to give the right response. And we have, well, maybe all of us have been in that place at one time or another. And the biblical response is quite obvious. As you see here, it is truthfulness. I was boiling mad. Now, remember on the previous slide, I had, I was all worked up, and I called it complaining in the Bible category. Well, here I'm going to call it anger. Now, again, you could put anger, you can insert anger in that, uh, on that other slide as well. Uh, but as I said, I'm trying to give you a plethora of words to think about, so you have a lot of words to play with as you're interacting with the person. So here, I'm calling it anger. And of course, the possible heart condition could be crazy for control. Anger, sinful anger, is a manipulative tactic of an insecure person who is trying to regain control of their world. Uh, a parent can get angry at a child, and what sinful anger, and what they're doing is they are manipulating the child so that they can regain control. And so it's better that we take, I was boiling mad, and again, we slide it through this hermeneutical filter of the Bible, and well, it cleans that up, and we don't round the corners anymore and don't sand it down, but we have a very clear category that, no, you were, were, anger, you were angry, and, of course, you could push that even further by taking James' language in James 4, that you were murdering without being unkind or harsh or playing the word police, but you can just see that the clarity of anger or, or murder, it really gets our attention. And the hope is that it would grab our attention in such a way that we would want to deal with it rather than sliding into this euphemistic morass. And so this person is craving control. Obviously, the biblical response would be self-control. Now, in the other slide, you may remember, uh, we had a person who was all worked up. I called it complaining. Uh, The possible heart condition was hopelessness, and the biblical response was thanksgiving. That's a completely different line from this version of anger that you see on the screen. Again, opening up the possibilities as you ask the Spirit to give you discernment. If you lived with him, or maybe you could substitute if you live with her, Uh, The Bible Bible category that I'm using here is bitterness and a possible heart condition of jealousy and envy. Again, that's that's not codified. This is not a formula, Uh, but it could be that the individual is looking out over the congregation and just wish that uh, your husband or or maybe the husband is thinking this, that his wife was uh, more like another person who loved the Lord more, etc. And so bitterness, it could be could be a possible heart condition of jealousy. And, of course, the biblical response would be forgiveness. That would be a starting point as you begin marriage reconciliation with this couple. A little stuff is not bad. Well, it's not, but I would really want to examine that. Uh, The Bible category could be covetousness, uh, craving acceptance. And so if I have a certain amount of stuff or the right kind of stuff, and then uh, people will look at me in a favorable light or in a way that I want them to look at me by my possessions, uh, a heart condition of acceptance. And, of course, generosity, uh, giving to others would be a better biblical response. He ticks me off. Now, here's the third time that I'm using anger, two of them on this slide, one on the prior slide, and this time. I'm calling it hatred, just to expand our categories. It could be folly. Of course, hatred is folly. It is a foolish person. And so in the three Bible uh, possible heart conditions, in the anger categories that I've used here, 
I get so worked up, I'm boiling mad, and he ticks me off. I've used hopelessness, craving control, and folly, just to give you an idea of the possibilities. And then the biblical response would be love. And so in this first part, we looked at unbiblical reasons for our actions using euphemistic language in order to communicate that. And it is really important that we ask God to give us the discernment to understand what is going on in this person. And so we are listening at two levels. We are hearing the words that is coming out of their mouths, and then we are listening at a lower heart level as we are exploring the idol factory because we know, as Jesus said in Luke 6, there is no discontinuity between what that person says and where that word was generated in their heart. So if there is corrupted fruit, then there is corrupted root. And so we're asking the question, why do they do what they do? And that is always examined or explored at the heart level. And now I want to, in part number two, I want to take a look at true or false, I don't know, we need discernment, reasons for our actions. And so this is the ambiguity part. Now, as we examine people, as we serve people, analyze, assess people, we don't do that with cynicism or suspicion. Uh, Sometimes people think, well, I can't judge someone, I can't be suspicious towards someone, and so we just throw the baby out with the bathwater, and we do not want to do that. We don't want to jump out of the ditch of suspicion and then jump into the ditch of, of not loving them at all. And so in this middle space is discernment. And so we're asking God out of a pure motive to want to help this individual to give us the discernment to understand what is really going on because there are possibilities. This could be a true reason for their, a biblical reason for their action, but maybe it's not. And so let's look at a few of those. I have two categories for you. On the left-hand side, a possible good desire. And so this is something that someone would say, and maybe there's nothing wrong with it. Or it could be that there are possible wrong motives. And so here is one. I want out of this mess. Now, we all do. Whatever our mess is, we want out of our mess. But see, Paul said something like this in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, I want out of this mess. I want this thorn in my flesh to be removed, and I'm asking you three times to remove it. It's a good desire, but that is not what God wanted in this uh, in Paul's life. Now, Jesus said the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want out of this mess. Father, if you would take this cup from me, I would greatly appreciate it. A good desire. However, and now I'm not saying that Jesus had the wrong motive. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that there's some desires that we have, and, and maybe God is working in a different way than what we had anticipated. Now, what Paul maybe unwittingly was craving, he was craving power, or he did not want to be weak. Now, this is what the text says, uh, because God said that I will not take this away from you. Uh, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your strength. And so we have to recognize that maybe God has another pathway for us, and that pathway includes weakness, but a person who likes to have power, to be strong. I don't want to be vulnerable. Perhaps they have a wrong motive. And so you don't want to be unkind as you examine this, but we must examine the motivation of the heart. The path, this path is the least resistant one, and we all have been there as well. Maybe there is a, a possible wrong motive a, as we try to discern this of craving pleasure. I know if I change, life will be easier. You you see in all three of these that I've presented thus far, on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with it. I want out of this mess. This path is the least resistant. I know if I change, life will be easier. And so with our non-cynical, non-suspicious minds, we ask God to give us insight again so that we can identify what might be going on. And without that judgment, we consider that possibly there, in this case, there's a craving for comfort. If I change, I won't be embarrassed. True, true enough. It could be a craving for reputation. And then finally on this screen, if my kids love God, I would look better. Well, you probably would. I, I think that's a fair statement. But 
are we craving respect? Now, what you see on the right-hand side of possible wrong motives, these are idols. These are idols of the heart. And I gave you five different ones. Now, I'm going to give you five more that are different. So we have power and pleasure. We have comfort and reputation and respect. Now, you can interchange these uh, with these possible good desires, but my point here is not to be formulaic, to give you a word cloud, to expand the possibilities so that when you're interacting with someone, you pneumatically cooperate with the elimination of the Spirit, your understanding of God's Word as you're discerning this person, and you consider all the possibilities that might apply, and then you ask them good questions to try to nail it so that if there is a functioning idol in this person's heart, I want to give you a word cloud of idols so that you can um, discern in the best possible ways to serve this person. And so you see five idols here, power, pleasure, comfort, reputation, and respect. Going to church will give me good kids, could be craving acceptance. My sinful habit costs me a lot, could be craving coveting. I don't want to be in pain any longer. Now, this is one that resonates with, with me because I've been living in chronic pain for multiple decades now with my uh, lower back, and so I understand. And I have a good desire. <laughs> I don't want to be in pain any longer. But as I examine that, a possible wrong motive could be self-reliance. And I've tried to examine myself as I make this request to the Lord. I don't want to be in pain any longer uh, to make sure that I am depending upon Him. And for whatever reason, it's been His pleasure to uh, allow me to be in pain uh, for these multiple decades now. And I'm okay with it uh, because I have seen that uh, though I am limited in many ways, that it does create a God-reliant spirit, and I'm, I cannot, in a hypothetical way, imagine what it would be like to be pain-free, and so I don't know what I would be like. I know there would be possibilities of relying on myself and not him who raises the dead, and so one of the possible wrong motives for a person making a statement like this could be self-reliance. I want my wife to stop nagging, or I want my husband to stop nagging, could be craving approval. Now, this is an interesting one, because uh, if a spouse is nagging the other spouse, it has a diminishing effect on that spouse, the one that's being nagged. And so they are shrinking by the day, and it can really stir up an idolatry in their heart. And so you'll have this uh, victim center construct where they're being victimized by uh, the nagging spouse, uh, but then they could be it could be um, bumping an idol in their heart like a craving for approval and what you'll find many times in like say a marriage situation where you'll have this center victim construct and you have to move through that very delicately because it's like why don't they just stop nagging well they should they, they really should they need to stop sinning However, uh, God is also using that person to identify, if you're responding sinfully to it, then God is identifying something in your heart that needs to be addressed, which makes you the victim sinner. You see, when heat bears down on us, heat will reveal. Now, it will either melt a container of snow or it will harden a container of mud. Heat does what heat does, and, and it will reveal what is in the container. And so if you have a nagging spouse, that is heat, and I'm not justifying that in any way, but I am saying that heat will reveal uh, something in you, and it could be not only should this heat go away, they should stop nagging, but maybe it's revealing something in your heart. God can use sin sinlessly, and he can bring sin into our lives. He can permit sin in our lives to where the nagging spouse becomes an instrument of righteousness in God's hands that he is using to identify something that we need to address in our hearts. Now, we are in the uh, ambiguous uh, area here, this, this center space, where it's not necessarily unbiblical, but it might not be biblical, and so it could be true or false, and that is the uh, point of 
on the outline, uh, point number two, and so again, we need to examine. And then finally, uh, on this part, we have, I want my reputation restored. And that's fine. I understand that desire, but we want to examine, could that be a craving for significance? Now, on the previous slide, I had five idols and of the heart, and now this slide I have five different ones on purpose, and so now we have ten. And this list here, six through ten, are acceptance, coveting, self-reliance, approval, and significance. Now there are more idols of the heart than these ten, uh, but it gives you a sampling as I am connecting them to possible good desires, maybe not good desires, and I trust that helps to uh, spur up your uh, spur on your thinking as you examine your own life, what may be operating in your heart, and then also those that you are discipling. So we looked at unbiblical reasons for our actions. Then we talked about true or maybe false reasons for our actions, the 18% grace space. And now we want to look at biblical reasons. These are solid. These are pure motives. And this is where all of us want to be. Maybe the best way to say this is that all biblical motives, all biblical motives, good motives, pure motives, must be rooted in the gospel. The gospel has to be the motivation of our heart. Sometimes you've heard the language of being gospel-centered. That is fine. We want to be gospel-centered people. And so the trailhead, the fountain for all of our words, the fountain for all of our actions, they they come up out of the gospel, that that is the source. There's no unbiblical euphemistic language where we have rounded the corners and sanded down our life uh, to a point to where it's palatable to our souls and we're able to maybe dupe other people, even unwittingly dupe other people because we're not even aware of the euphemistic language that we use. We could be uh, teetering between good and bad motives, and again, that could be in an unwitting way as well. Uh, I I think that it would be fair to say that many of us are not that self-aware where we can examine uh, the idols of our heart, and so we might not see uh, where our motives are not exactly in line with God's purposes in our lives, and that is why uh, we need those types of friends who understand koinonia relationships, understand community as they participate in fellowship with you to where they can speak in your life in a reciprocal way because you can do the same in theirs. We need people who will consider us enough to bring corrective care into our lives to spur us on to love and good works. And, they, and, and of course, they do this in a comforting way, in a parakaleo way, where they come alongside us and comfort us as they're bringing corrective care because they have considered us. And of course, they begin to help us to see And you work together reciprocally to examine the motive of the heart as best as you can understand. And what you really want is your motives to be rooted in the gospel. Now, that begs the question, what is the gospel? The gospel is, in the most succinct way that I know how to say it, is the person and work of Christ. Christ is the good news. Christ is the prophesied one from Genesis 3.15. He is the coming Messiah that we see. Uh, He is the crushed one that we see uh, in Isaiah 53. He is the one that every, uh, every woman in Israel wanted to give birth to him. He is the good news. Jesus Christ is the gospel. And you could say that his person, who he was, he was the God-man, the hypostatic union. He was 100% man, and he was 100% God. His person and his work, the things that he did, uh, he paid the price. He atoned for our sin. He died on the cross. He resurrected the gospel, and he ascended. And the gospel has always existed because Christ is eternal. The gospel is eternal. The gospel is in eternity past. The gospel came to our world in the form of Jesus Christ. The gospel will be in eternity future as well. The good news, the gospel, is Christ in a word, in a statement, a tagline, uh, you might say. 
is the person and work of Christ. Therefore, our motive must be centered. You could say Christ-centered, that our motive must be centered on Christ. That is what we want. Uh, that is how we want to be rooted uh, in Him. And then out of that will flow all of our words and all of our actions. And so God, the gospel, to be gospel-centered, to be Christ-centered. And then I want to illustrate this from Scripture and I trust as you see this that uh, it'll, it will bring clarity. It will help you to situate uh, your heart motives as well as mine uh, on Christ. And then out of that will flow our words and actions. And so let's take a look. I'm going to give you a another word cloud. And out of this word cloud, they'll be, they'll be situated in Scripture. And so I want to tie our motive to God's Word. And so let me say it this way. As you see on the screen, uh, gospel motivation for our—now here's three things. My motive for my presupposition. My motive for my thoughts. My motive for my worldview. And so everybody has a presupposition. The presupposition is like a lens, like a pair of glasses that we wear. Th that is how we interpret Everybody has a presupposition. I want my presupposition to be gospel-centered. I, I want to look through the lens of the gospel to interpret my world. Regardless of, regardless of what I'm looking at, I want to look at it through a gospel-centered lens, through a Christ-centered lens. And so I want the gospel to be my motive for my presupposition, also my thoughts, I want the gospel to motivate my thoughts. I want the gospel to motivate my worldview. There's a text of Scripture where Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.22, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the only thing that Christ want, uh, That's the only thing that Paul wanted to know. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, except the gospel. That's all I want to know. If Christ is all that we want to know, if he is our starting point, our ending point, if he is our reason, if he is our motivation, that's going to impact our presupposition. It's going to impact our thoughts. It's going to impact our worldview. And so just situating our motivation in Scripture, just this one verse, 1 Corinthians 2.22, where Paul said, I decided to know Nothing among you but except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If Christ is preeminent in your mind, in your language, in your, in your words, in your heart, in your thoughts, the way that you think, that He permeates your soul, that's going to impact your presuppositional lens. And through that lens, that's going to affect your thoughts, and your thoughts are going to give you a worldview. Now, there is no question that Paul presuppositionally was gospel-centered. His thoughts were gospel-centered. His worldview was gospel-centered. Everything that flowed out virtually, everything that flowed out of his, of his mouth and all of his words were gospel-centered. And we see a key here, that he was passionate about Christ. And so you can examine that in a non-cynical, non-judgmental -judge way about your friends and maybe yourself as well as you examine the log in your eye, which is a good idea. But as you do that, do you have that kind of affection for Christ? Do you have Paul's affection for Christ? Where when you, when you think about life, it's like, man, and this is hyperbolic speaking, I understand, but I, I do not want to know anything. But Jesus Christ is him crucified. That is your starting point, really. That is where you're coming from. That is what permeates, saturates your heart. That is your animating center. Well, obviously, that's going to affect your presupposition, your thoughts, and your worldview. And as you help others, as you're discipling them, coming alongside them, you do want to examine their animating center. And there are many people that really decided to know nothing among you except their favorite baseball team, the job that they live, uh, the, the job that they work, or other things that preoccupy their time. They are not gospel-centered, and that changes the lens through which they look through. It affects their thoughts, and it alters their worldview. Let's take a, take a look at another one. And so we're building a word cloud of gospel-motivated um, ideas and concepts. I talked about presupposition, talked about thoughts, talked about worldview. Now I'll talk about mercy. Why are you merc why are you merciful, assuming that you are merciful? Well, our motive for mercy, again, has to be rooted in the gospel. All the things that we do, whether it's our presupposition, our thoughts, our worldview, or mercy, everything 
has to be rooted in the gospel. This text of scripture in Matthew 18.33, many of you are familiar with. I am only looking at a verse, but it, it is in the context of a story uh, of the man who was forgiven a humongous debt, and he went out and beat up a dude uh, who did not owe nearly as much. And then the master came along and said, what, you did this, you have been forgiven so much? And you're beating up this person who owes so little. And he says, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now there's an application here. What have you received that was not given to you? As Paul told the Corinthians, For by grace uh, have you been saved, as Paul told the church at Ephesus. God has shown mercy to us out of what God did for us, we want to be merciful toward others. And if we truly understand the gospel, if we have a gospel-centered understanding of mercy, of how God was merciful to us, we have been forgiven so much debt, as Paul would say in First Corinth, in First Timothy. 115, that he was the foremost sinner. He understood this. He had been forgiven so much by the gospel that his heart began to be motivated by the gospel in the specific area of being merciful. Another word here, in fact, in this text that I'm going to show you, there are several character traits, and so I don't have them listed on the screen, but the text is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, and we can look at it here now, look at the entire text. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, because of the gospel, I am a prisoner to Christ. He came and redeemed me. I am in him. I am in unity with him. I have received an alien righteousness. I have been born again. I am a slave to Christ. He's rooting these actions in the gospel is what he's saying here. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. He's rooting it in the gospel, and he says this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so not only am I a prisoner of the gospel, but you are too, because God has called you, and therefore, because of the gospel, because of what happened to you, you need to walk in a manner worthy. And then he gives us a list of character traits. With all humility, one, and gentleness, two, and with patience, three, bearing with one another, four, in love, five, eager. There's an intentionality there. Uh, outdo one another, showing honor, as he talked about in Romans 12, that's six, to maintain the unity, number seven, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's eight character traits right there in this text, and all eight of them are tied or rooted to the gospel as Paul, a prisoner of the gospel, and for us who have been called by the gospel, transformed by the gospel, then if we truly understand what happened to us at the cross, at regeneration, then what should flow out of our lives should be humility, gentleness, patience, bearing, love, eagerness, unity, and peace. Let's look at another verse, our gospel motivation for kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. A new grouping of words, and we see that in Ephesians 4.32, a familiar text uh, for most all of you. Paul said, be kind to one another. There's kindness. He said, be tenderhearted to one another. There's tenderness. Be forgiving to one another. And there's forgiveness. There's the three character traits. And then notice how he roots it again in the gospel, the person work of Christ. Why, sh why should you do this? As God in Christ forgave you because of the gospel, because of your regeneration. This is very similar to what you saw in Matthew 18, 33. Should you not have mercy as God has had mercy on you? And you see uh, all of these texts, they're just laying right on top of Scripture. They're just right there. And you see this linkage or this 
connector, the linkage of words that are connected to the gospel. And so there's a kind person, a tender person, a forgiving person. That is what is coming out of their mouths. Those are the behaviors that you see exhibited. But if you follow the line from those words and behaviors down into the heart, what you will see is a person motivated by the gospel. They have been so affected by God that they only know they only know one way to respond. In this case, is kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. Now, uh, let's say that you know someone who has a pattern of unkindness, a pattern of of non tenderness, and a pattern pattern of unforgiveness. Well, as you follow that line down to their heart, you will not see a gospel-saturated person. You'll not see a gospel-centered person. There is something else motivating them. But gospel-motivated people, Christ-motivated people, as you go back from the heart, as you climb that line, that, that, that line of continuity from their heart to their words and actions, as you climb out of their heart, what you will see is kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. Let's look at one more gospel motivation for bearing and forgiveness. This is repetitive. I've already talked about bearing and forgiveness, but I want you to see the gospel connection in Colossians 3.13, and that is actually maybe a good way to think of it. What I'm doing here is I'm making gospel connections. I'm connecting the gospel-motivated heart to the words and actions that we do. In Colossians 3.13, it says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Why? What is your motivation? What is your animating center? Paul says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That is the motive of the heart that Paul wants us to see. And so as you look at those texts that I've given you, there was a word cloud that began to form. And that word cloud you see on the screen, it's just those few verses of gospel connection. Now imagine if you and if I... If all of our friends live just according to those, say, four or five verses, just those, nothing else in the New Testament, that we, that, that we, don't, we don't know anything else in the New Testament but those few verses, this, this is how we would be, as you see on the screen. The gospel would affect our lens through how we interpret all of life. It will give us a worldview. It will uh, control and manage our thoughts uh, we will be merciful. We'll be walking in humility. There will be gentleness, patience, bearing, love, unity, eagerness, peace, kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Just those few verses. That is really a profound thought. If I could wrestle <laughs> with just five verses or however many they were, if I could just wrestle with those and apply those, this is the fruit that you would see in my life. And that is absolutely profound. But there's a lot more in the New Testament. As we read the books of the New Testament, particularly the letters that Paul wrote, for example, Peter and James as well, and John. But as we read these letters and begin to see that we want our motivation to be Christ, uh, to be the gospel, and then as we read these behaviors and attitudes and actions and how to serve each other, if we're truly rooted and saturated in the gospel, then we'll begin to take on those habits and those lifestyles and those word choices would be different. Summing it up, may... The gospel be underneath all that we do. How to identify the ruling motives of the heart. I want to make a few uh, points as I wrap up here because it's essential. And you could look at these as summary points. Maybe that would be a helpful way to think about it. Summary point number one, if you don't get the gospel right, lasting change will not happen. And so with some people, you will really have to build a case for a, a case for a gospel-centered lifestyle or mindset, because this could be an unknown tongue. This could be a foreign language to some people. Most people who come in for counseling, for example, are looking for a behavioral modification. They're looking for change, quick change, uh, and they they really aren't interested in, in taking a longer look at the motivations of our heart. For example, uh, earlier I was talking about 
a person that wants out of this mess. And I reference Paul's uh, desire to want out of that mess in 2 Corinthians 12. And so if you're discipling someone who is wanting primarily behavioral modification, which understand the desire, I really do, all of us do, we all know that. Uh, but but if they don't have the gospel right, uh, then that's going to put them in a bind. And some people will be impatient with you as you begin to teach a transformative theology that affects the heart, specifically their sanctification. And so your starting point will determine your ending point. If you begin with the gospel, you'll end up glorifying God. It doesn't mean that you're going to get everything that you want. Uh, you may always have that thorn in the flesh, but Paul glorified God because his starting point, it determined his ending point. And he said it very well in Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him cruci- crucified. And then I would appeal to you to be on the lookout for gospel connections. I made a few in these verses for you uh, from who you are in Christ at the level of the heart to how you behave toward others because of Christ. And then the last one is, should change not occur? And this gets back to what I was saying earlier, when suffering does not go away, for example. You can continue to have joy because of the gospel. And that is exactly what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians. He was very clear about this. Uh, in, in, chapter, uh, in, in chapter 12, as I was referencing, in verse number 10, as he got through that passage, he began talking about uh, the abundant revelations that he had, um, that God had given him. Uh, then he talked about God giving him, uh, he was harassing him, a messenger of Satan was harassing him. And then he had a thorn in the flesh. And so you see the sequencing here. And, and then Paul was wanting out of that mess, if I could use my euphemistic language here. He was wanting out of that mess. And then God said, no, I'm not going to let you out of this. My strength is perfected in your weakness. And then Paul said, therefore, therefore I will rejoice in hardships, insults, calamities, and so forth. And then in verse number 10, he gives us this punchline where he says, uh, when I am weak, then I am strong. And so Paul learned how to be content, but he learned how to be content because he was gospel-centered. His suffering did not go away, and that is important. Now, I trust that whatever difficulties that you are in, that your your suffering can go away. Uh, but in many cases, that is not true. And, of course, Paul also told uh, the Corinthians that our bodies are wasting away, and so there will be some element of suffering with us all the days of our lives. And so we really need to have a sound theology of suffering because suffering will be our partner uh, until we're glorified in Christ. But if we are truly gospel-centered, if we're animated by the person and work of Christ, now one of the ways that you would be that way, animated by the person and work of Christ, is by reflecting upon God's kindness uh, to you, to us, uh, by what he did at regeneration. A person's gratefulness for what God did for them at the cross, a person's gratefulness for the gospel, it will begin to transform the heart, and of course that will affect our motivations. And so if you're in a situation where the change that you desire, and maybe it's a good desire, But if God does not grant that change, the suffering does not go away. The truth is you can continue to have joy because of the gospel. And we see that exemplified not just in Paul's life, but we see it throughout the biblical characters uh, in the Bible. Joseph would be another uh, who recognized uh, that this is his uh, lot in life, that he would never come out of Egypt alive. But he had a God-centered perspective on that, but his affection for God was greater than whatever is going on uh, in his terrestrial world, and that is the place that we want to be. And if we're gospel-centered, we can experience that for sure. The big idea in this talk is the process of change begins when you can determine the actual ruling motive of the heart. And we looked at three uh, different categories, unbiblical, ambiguous uh, desires, and then, of course, the true biblical desire, which is a gospel-centered heart.
Our hearts generate our problems, so identifying the war within brings us to the starting place in the discipleship change process. Before you leave, I I do have a few things that I would love for you to consider. One is that you pray for our ministry. That would be uh, most fantastic if you would just ask God to continue to intervene as He chooses uh, to bless our ministry and help us to reach as many people as possible with the practical message of Christ. Now, you can help us do that uh, in a functional way by following us on all the socials, uh, wherever you are, on social media, and then, of course, sharing our content. Nearly all of our content is free, and so we ask people to help us evangelistically or missionally as you help us spread the practical message of Christ. Uh, The niche in our ministry is practical. Uh, That is the thing that we focus on uh, more than anything else, because this is, we're we're an on-the-ground ministry, and this is what people uh, need. They want to know how to connect uh, the Bible, to connect their theology to the lives that they live. And so as they continue to grow in theology, we want to take that theology and connect it practically. And so you can help us by sharing our content. Now, for those of you who are able, some are, most aren't, uh, but those who are able to support us or to make a one-time donation, uh, we really need your financial support, uh, local churches supporting us and individuals as well, because again, as I said earlier, we do give most all of our content away, uh, but there is nothing free, and so some, some someone has to underwrite it. And so we do pray that God would send uh, financial underwriters that will support our ministry and help us to continue to do what we do. Perhaps there are some of you that would like to take our all online training course where we teach people how to do the work of discipleship and become a biblical counselor if you prefer that language. I like discipleship in the context of the local church. We teach people how to do that. We have a course that's all online, and you're welcome to check out find out what that's about by going to lifeovercoffee.com. The title of this talk is Exploring the Idol Factory, How to Identify the Ruling Motives of the Heart. Thank you so much for watching, and for those who have listened to the podcast version, I'm very grateful that you have participated with me, and please share this with others and help them to walk through this as you spur them on to love and good works. You can find me at my coffee shop, lifeovercoffee.com, where we have conversations for transformation. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com. 